Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation Capital, a pre-seed venture firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season is sponsored by our friends at Silicon Valley Bank, a member of the FDIC. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. Learn more about Silicon Valley Bank services at svb.com. Eva Ho is a general partner and co-founder of Fika Ventures, a new LA-based seed fund. She's also the EIR of the city of Los Angeles and a board member of the California Community Foundation. She previously was a general partner with Sousa Ventures, but Eva spent most of her career as an operator and early employee at companies like Factual and Applied Semantics, as well as a co-founder of Navigating Cancer. So, Eva, we are uh, super excited to have you on Origins, particularly given uh, the recent news that you announced um, with the launch of, of Fika Ventures. Congrats. Thank you. Congrats. So we're psyched to have you. Um, uh, and we're doing this on Skype today. So uh, hopefully the sound um, is just as good as usual. So you are based in L.A.? or split between LA and San Francisco? Uh, I am, I'm based in LA, but I spend about 30% of my time uh, in, in the Valley. So uh, I'm actually here in San Francisco today, but uh, yeah, that's the typical split. Over It's been like 15 years I've been doing this. Right. Uh, so I kind of have two homes in two places. So I think as just as a start, um, if you could give us, you know, a couple minutes on, uh, on your background and uh, some of the things that you've uh, you've done, both as a as an operator investor. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you so much, Nick and Alex, for having me on. Uh, I really love your podcast. I've been a big fan for uh, since you started. Um, so thank you for having me. Um, from a background perspective, I think uh, I, you know I've heard enough podcasts that so many folks take so many different roads, and perhaps mine is just another. Um, but uh, I grew up uh, uh, in Mozambique, Africa, on a farm, um, and my family actually immigrated to the U.S. when I was eight. Uh, there was a civil war going on around that time, um, and so we were basically refugees of the war and got extremely fortunate to come to Boston, um, where my family, family of six, settled. Um, we had $99. I think it's such a weird amount, and people, when I say it, people are like, oh, you must be exaggerating or or amplifying the story, but uh, those are sort of the facts. Um and uh, as a family of six, we started all over again. Um, and, you know, it was a really sort of traumatic time. And I think, you know, we were a family that were uh, recipients of a lot of social services from food stamps for a couple of years um, to a, a public housing. So we I lived in the housing projects in East Boston until I went to college. And I only share that background as a um, sort of a uh, explaining a bit of sort of why I choose to focus on the things I focus on today right. and, and why I, I chosen specific priorities. Um, we ran a small Chinese restaurant. My family, my dad's very entrepreneurial, um, very, very small restaurant. And I was working there since I was 11. Fast forward uh, in postgraduate school. Um, I went to graduate school in the East Coast. Uh, I came out West and spent a couple years in San Francisco. Uh, and then I moved to LA actually for a guy. <laughs> um, I, I, <laughs> it's not, I guess, atypical, but 
uh, fell out of love with that guy, but fell in love with LA. <laughs> so mm. There's a net positive in that story. Right. Yeah. So I didn't, I actually didn't intend to um, be in LA uh, for as long as I have. Um, I, I really like the Bay area. I felt like it was much more attuned to me. Um, but sort of once sort of the LA bug sinks into you, it really sort of take hold, takes hold. And, um, partially for that, I think I would have to attribute that to my first company in LA, which is a company that was called Oingo. Um, it was a search engine founded by two Caltech guys, uh, Gil and Adam eventually ended up becoming applied semantics. Um, and we ended up creating a product called AdSense. Um, so we were very fortunate, you know, we sold that to Google in 03 and, and that ride was very seminal in my life. Um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of, again, a lot of luck involved, but, uh, at the same time, I think it really established, uh, sort of my beginning career in tech, um, was at Google for quite a few years. Uh, and then, uh, I left and, uh, wanted to, uh, get back into the startup game and did a healthcare company called Navigating Cancer. Um, and there's a story behind that. And then eventually, uh, while doing that, I got intrigued with what Gil, uh, one of the co-founders of Ply Semantics was building and joined him on the business side to do a company called Factual, which is one of the early sort of big data plays. Um, so spent about five years there, six years working closely with Gil, um, and then ended up moving into the investing side. That was hands down the most interesting introduction we've heard on this <laughs> podcast to date. <laughs> um, uh, and that's an um, incredible, incredible story. Um, when did you, uh, had you been angel investing along the way over the past, you know, 10 years as, as, as you built a career as an operator? Um, honestly, no. Um, a lot of my friends uh, post Google, you know, made a little bit of money. Um, and we're doing, um, angel investing, um, and, but I couldn't get comfortable with it until about 2012. I think for me, the notion of watching what they were doing, which is writing checks between 25,000 and 50,000 into, uh, you know, ideas based on like a deck on a couple of folks, uh, seemed honestly, literally insane to me. I mean, if you look at right. the scale of it, uh, $50,000 output, uh, was more than twice what the annual household income of my parents were. Um, in the 80s um, and right. into the 90s. So it was an extraordinary amount of money. So I thought this was like the craziest thing they were doing. Um, but I ran into a friend, uh, Seth Berman, um, who's now um, at mm -hmm. Susa. And he was just a really good salesman and said, hey, Eva, like, you know, I have some really interesting angel investments. Like, why don't you join me? Um, and I got kind of sucked into it and I got more comfortable with it. And it was through Seth that I started the angel investing and eventually I joined him, um, to form SUSE. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, I know you were, uh, part of the founding team there. I'd love to hear about, um, your transition as an, as an operator into, uh, into a VC at SUSE. Yeah, it was a, it, it was an interesting decision. I think, um, it wasn't an easy one. I, I loved factual. Um, and we already had quite a large team there. Uh, I was really involved in every aspect of that business. And so leaving that company and more importantly, um, leaving Gill was one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. Um, we were together for more than a dozen years. Um, but I wanted to try my hand at something different. And, uh, when I met Seth, uh, you know, we, shortly brought on, um, uh, as partners, Chad and Leo. And it was really just sort of a group of loosely coupled friends, if you want to call it. And right. we wanted to try our hands in venture. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, you know, but we had some lucky breaks and that Chad's family, the buyer's family are, um, are very prominent. They're very 
uh, helpful. Uh, they were amazing mentors to the, the team early on. Um, so I think that transition wasn't without its bumps. Uh, I think being a VC is very, very different than being an operator. And I think emotionally, mentally, it took a while for me to kind of understand actually what that job entailed. Um, but it was a wonderful ride. I learned a, a, quite a bit from it. And I think I got more intrigued by it. Um, you know, I think I was asked to be a VC in 2008, coming out of Google by some of the bigger firms, and it never appealed to me. I mean, I got offers from some of the big firms, and it just wasn't something I wanted to do. I think the difference this time around in 2012 was we had Andreessen and Index, uh, who were the early sort of large backers of Factual, and uh, I was in every board meeting, and I got to interact with the Ben Horowitz and the Danny Reimers, and mm. Just like these guys are really fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, and I saw being built. I mean, I think when we were starting Factual, it was kind of when they were starting Andreessen and watching them build their little empire and knowing sort of the difference between a great VC and a less great VC. I got inspired to say, hey, maybe, maybe I could do a little bit of this. Um, so I think it was through them that I decided that this was a career I wanted to pursue, but it, it definitely wasn't without some bumps. Could you fast forward to? Um you know, a few years, um, you know, a lot of folks that uh, either listen to this podcast and obviously we've um, been doing it ourselves the last few years. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, the thought process and the decision-making process um, to uh, to leave SUSA and really, you know, build your own firm with a new team um, and, 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 and how that led to, you know, what is today FICA Ventures? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, it's it's actually something I talk to a lot of sort of newer uh, fund managers because it's it's a, it's such a big deal. I think to start a fund, I think a lot of folks don't even know what what really that that commitment looks like. Um, so when I started SUSA, as I mentioned earlier, it was kind of just something that we wanted to try. Um, I I didn't even read through the full LPA the first time. Right. I was like, oh my god, this doctor is like a hundred pages. I didn't understand half of it, um, but I trusted the buyers. I trusted my team. I was like, a, you know, we had good lawyers, et cetera. But uh, when we came to, um, I think it was 2015 when we uh, decided that we needed to go uh, do fund two, it came out of the blue, honestly. I had no clue the cycles were so short between one and two. Um, and I was like, oh, my God, we have to go raise money again. Um, and it was really a, a time for me to sort of hit the pause button and think to myself. Um, I asked myself sort of three questions like, did I want to stay in venture? Because I, I did honestly miss operating quite a bit. Um, two, if I wasn't doing venture, uh, how else could I use my time productively? Um, and three, if I was to continue to do this, who would I want to do it with? Would it be the existing team or somebody new? Um, and I think the answer came down to that as much as I missed operating, I wasn't really quite ready to jump back into that, that path. Um, and I really did enjoy investing uh, but I wanted to do it a slightly different way. And I think uh, FICA sort of embodies that sort of that refinement of SUSE, which is a smaller team, um, you know, one main partner, although we have a team of four. Uh, and really just kind of taking some of the learnings that we had there and applying in a different way and honestly refocusing uh, on L.A. I think SUSE, most of our investments were up north. Um, and that was important, I think, to, for me to build a relationship and the credibility with those GPs up north. Um, but I think my, you know, my home still is LA and I wanted to double down and come back to sort of the home base. How did, how did you, you know, we, we think about adding partners to the team over time and, and obviously it's, uh, it is a very delicate decision. Like how, how did you begin to diligence, um, 
you know, your, your own new partnership, particularly with, um, with TX and, um, and our team and other, and other folks on the team? Yeah, it was quite a natural process. And I think, um, I think for new fund managers, I, I often think of uh, when we have conversations where I spend half the time talking to them about their partners and how they are making those choices. Um, I think Susa, when we did the four partners, we all like, just kind of got together one day and I knew some of them better than others. And it was like, oh, we were more enamored by just the path versus the partnership. Um, we all wanted to try something new. We're excited about it. And we, you know, fundamentally liked each other, but not all of us knew each other very well or had worked together deeply. Um, so with TX, I met TX about five years ago. And um, we, uh, when he moved to LA and started Carlin, um, we just kept running into each other. And there was a natural sort of like draw towards each other. And I, I, it's hard to explain, but um, we ended up doing several deals together. We ran some big events together. Um, and really what bonded us early on was not the business side, but we both came from similar family and cultural backgrounds. I think he also grew up with a lot of uh, interesting challenges with his family. Um, both of us support our parents fully uh, since we were like in our like late wow. teens. Um, yeah. So we actually ended up just kind of really talking through that and how that affects our decisions today. And um, and so the early days, we talked a lot about that and getting through that. Um you know, he's 10 years younger than me, so I think he's slightly in a different cycle. Um, but uh, but uh, we really fundamentally liked each other. And I think through the five years, uh, through working together, through all those conversations, um, you know, we had a chance to get to know each other deeply. And we had enough circumstances where uh, we gave the relationship sort of enough runway to really stress test under a variety of circumstances. And I think that's the most important part. Um, and then I think when this 2015 came around, it became very obvious to me. I was just like, well, TX, you know, would you consider joining SUSE? And he was like, oh my God, I was thinking the same whether you would actually join me at Carlin. Um, and none of those, neither of those configuration were, were uh, really possible uh, or it wasn't the, what we wanted to do. So we ended up breaking right. off doing our own thing, but it took many years. And I think the, I think the best partnerships are the ones where it becomes fairly inevitable. We're like, yeah, we want to work together. Let's just find out how, um, mm -hmm. and how TX and I arrived at it. Mm. Um, I want to hear about kind of like where you started in terms of in terms of raising Fika. Did you get maybe to jump ahead just a bit? I mean, did you get? We hear from LPs sometimes they're they're somewhat wary of these, um, you know, teams that have never like directly worked with it, each other before. I forget what the what was the word that they called it, Alex. Um, <clears throat> I don't I don't remember. It was like uh, anyway, you know, where where kind of two people. You know, maybe they were friendly, they've done some deals together, but they've never actually worked together. I mean, did you get pushback as you were raising, as you were raising Fika in that, yes, you might have known each other pretty well. You, on paper, it makes sense. You like each other. You've done some deals together, but you haven't actually worked in the trenches together. Yeah, we did. Uh, uh, we did. I think we had several headwinds and that that was only one of them. <laughs> one of them. Right. Uh, right. I mean, I guess, you know, for funds, I think, you know, fundamentally, it's a handful of partnerships, a handful of key men on that LPA. It makes complete sense that that's sort of the biggest hurdle we had to overcome. Um, and I think what helped us was, and, and you know, we weren't a, good, a fit for some folks who, who really did have that question and we weren't able to overcome it. But I think the folks who took the time to just like hang out with us um, really became very clear. Like, they're like, man, the two of you like laugh a lot and the two of you just mm. really gel and 
you know, we pick on each other. It's really just like when, when you see us together, like sitting together and you spend like an hour or two over a meal, it becomes very, very clear that TX and I kind of, kind of just kind of belong together. <laughs> so right. it's hard to say, but for funds that just where we pitched over the phone or they never physically saw us, mm -hmm. it was hard because we were telling a narrative and I'm sure lots of fund managers tell a really good story and we sound like every other story in some ways, you know? Um, so I think that, that the ones that dug in a bit more, I think got that chemistry. Um, it's, but it's a, it's a great question. It's something a lot of fund managers have to overcome. How, how did you approach this fundraising process differently having having gone through it at at um at susa before for the first time and and having that experience under your belt yeah and i and i would and i would add like you know so 2015 you and tx decide to work together um you know i think you you just closed how much for the first fund uh susa was 25 oh uh, fika was fika is 40 Forty million dollars. So, you know, where do you you go out? You're going out to raise forty million dollars. Like, where the hell do you start? Yeah, it was a very interesting process, and I think you guys are going through something similar. Uh, we uh, we put our deck together like last February, um, and uh, at the same time, we were negotiating our sort of exit uh, contracts with our existing funds, and and you know, my my exit contract super amicable with amicable with Susa. Um, but one of the stipulations was I wasn't allowed to poach any of these SUSE LPs, um, which I under, understood, but it certainly made the path ahead right. much harder. Right. Um, and TX only had one LP in, in Carlin. It was one one person. Um, so we had to create recreate sort of the Rolodex. And I think in the LP world, a lot of folks didn't know us. I think our first, when we raised SUSE 1, it was raised really quickly from a handful of sort of close folks. Um, so a lot of folks are close to the buyers. Um so it was a very different process. And, you know, TX and I, we just didn't have these relationships. Um, but in some ways, honestly, that now I can reflect a, <laughs> reflect a little bit. It was actually better in that um, it was pretty cathartic for TX and I to start the journey um, sort of on the same footing, on the same place. Uh, neither of us came with a basket of money. Um, mm. So every LP we added onto our spreadsheet, we basically met generally together and um, and we got to know every LP fairly intimately together. Um, so we felt every loss, every win together. Um, and while there are times it was quite stressful, I mean, many occasions, honestly, guys, like we never thought we would get to 40. I mean, 40 was something fairly aspirational. Um, right. It's kind of a number that we threw out there. Uh, but so many occasions I was like, oh, my God, if we got to 20, it would be fine. You know, we had enough money to get going. It wouldn't fundamentally change our portfolio strategy too much. We just try to basically all along the way kept reminding ourselves that it was okay if we never got to that amount. Um, and I think that helped us a bit, but I, I'm not going to lie to you. Like it was quite stressful uh, and I'm not dying to repeat this process anytime. Right. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, we, so we had, we built this database and over time we kept adding people and we got referrals and our database ended up being uh, around probably like six, 700 people. Uh, oh my God. It's wow. Crazy. Wow! I, I'm being Wait, so let me let me. You had a you have a list of six hundred people. Yep. Yeah, wow. from individuals to endowments to institutions, and I, I imagine some people, some other folks might have even bigger lists. Um, wow. but we created every name from scratch, and and we couldn't poach the folks from Susa, so Susa had taken up a bunch of folks already. So I mean, this is excluding some of the folks that had already invested in Susa too. Um, so going into the process, you know, we were a first time fund. 
uh, considered first time fund, first time partnership. A lot of questions around why I left SUSE when seemingly from the outside everything was going so super duper well. Right. Um, we went and we entered the fundraising hard, really sort of heavy uh, mid 2016 when we started, when a lot of people had committed a lot of allocations already. Um, and you know, in the first part of the year, um, and then we had to convince them of the LA story. So mm-hmm. some sp- stuff going on <laughs> where they're like, well, you know, so the folks that passed many, you know, who knows? I mean, I guess that's the standard answer they passed because one, one of these four reasons where they couldn't get comfortable. Um, but, uh, but we went out and we just took, you know, one call at a time and we pitched so many people, uh, and we kissed so many frogs. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think, we quickly like honed down to the folks that weren't a good match for us. We just never took it personally and we just let it go. Uh, so we quickly filtered that list to folks that, you know, had some chemistry, some interest. Um, right. That's, that's really the hard part. The hard part is how do you take 600 folks right. and what conversations do you have and how hard do you pursue? Um, Cause each of them behave a bit differently and how do you gather enough data to know that they're a good fit or they're not a good fit. Um, but at the end we got very lucky the final folks that, that came in, um, are folks that we actually like call friends. I mean, they're folks we know very, very well now uh, through this whole six month process. We hang out with them and they're just amazing people, not because they gave us checks. I mean, independently, we always thought like, these are just great people. And even if they never came in, like we would want to pursue them hard for the fun too. Um, that's sort of how much we liked the, the eventual sort of the handful of uh, three or four big institutions that came in. I have kind of a tactical question. I mean, if, if, if you were going out, you know, to raise fund one, $40 million, um, and you figure, all right, we may or may not get there. Um, just from a positioning perspective, I mean, we've, we have some conversations with other VCs, like from a positioning perspective, you know, uh, wouldn't the better approach be like, all right, you target 25 or 30 million and you're oversubscribed and you have all this momentum and then you end up at 40. Um, like, did you at any point in the process think, oh man, it might be really hard to get to 40. Maybe we should lower our target and that'll kind of like give us at least the, the, um, the, the, um, the, the perception that, you know, we have real momentum through the fundraising process. We thought about it a bit, Nick, at the beginning, but you know, TX and I, we never really cared about perception that much because it, it really comes down to whatever we end up with at this sort of first fund is just how well we perform, right? Like we could trick anybody into giving us some amount of money, um, whether it's, you know, the total of 25 or 30 or 40. Um, we never really cared so much that if we only ended up with uh, two thirds, that it was some sort of, I don't know, failure. Um, you know, we had a good strategy for 40 million. We knew what we wanted to do with it. Um, and we knew how to adjust it if it was less. So we didn't, so once we sort of put the ego aside that we were actually okay going out into the world to say, Hey, we tried for 40, but we only ended up 30. Um, it was going to be okay. Um, it's interesting because there are times when we hit everybody, you know, a lot of folks who were trying to encourage us said, Oh, you know, when you get to 25 and you get your first sort of big lead institution, it's all going to be downhill after that. It's going to look super easy. Right. It never became super easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. You know? And so I think, we had an amazing first sort of big institution that came in and, you know, they believed us, believed in us even beyond the points when we believed in ourselves. Cause we, we, at one point we had gone to them and said, Hey, you know, we're really struggling at this 30 mark. Um, right. We don't know whether we can get there. Like, would you guys be okay if we stopped at like 32 and right. said, you know what? Uh, it would be okay. Absolutely. But we, right. th- we think you'll get to 40. 
Mm. You know, and they helped it was helped us with some referrals and stuff. And um, so it's quite amazing when you do have somebody there. I mean, we still had to go through the process, but uh, you know, there were times that we felt like we wanted to give up because we're like, oh my god, this is so painful. Um, but you know, they kept giving us a little push, like, why don't you just talk to this one more person? Like, why mm. just one more person? And they were our, like a real partner to us uh, along the way. Uh, we we literally could not have done it without them. Did you end up just doing one close or did you close early on on early commitments and then and then keep going or, or push it off until you you hit that target? Yeah, we closed. A, the our first close was, I think, 29 um, in late October. And then we did a final close in January. Uh, or, or no, actually early February. So we did two closes. Um, I think in terms of like, how do you make that decision for us? It was really, mm-hmm. We started raising in June. So we had some a lot of individual checks that were kind of lingering and then we were heading into the election. And so we, some worries like, Oh my God, like these people, and we had some international folks. We had a, a bunch of folks from Singapore. We just felt like, Oh my God, this, these folks are going to think like America's crazy and mm. these bets would be really stupid. Uh, so we decided to do it literally in October, right before the election. Um, and, uh, and then post-election, um, we did actually lose some sort of, um, LPs that were, were quite interested that were overseas. Wow. Were wow. out about the election and, wow. And uh, I mean, they never said that outright, certainly, because right. um, everybody wants to be super bipartisan. <laughs> but the reality is we kind of felt that it was a uh, it was uh, November was very post-election was very hard. It became quite dark between uh, November and uh, actually actually towards the end of the year. We didn't get a lot of bites. Um, I think people were just kind of wading through the frenzy a bit. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and then things picked up again in January. But but going to December, like I, I think we thought we weren't ever able to get to 40. <laughs> so. Uh, that it's like, I hope that our first LP that that listening. Congrats. Uh, yeah. Congrats again. So um, that's I, awesome. I share this more to say that for folks who are out there, like you never know when that corner is going to turn. You never know when that check is going to come in. And all the folks in the background who all, a lot of the LPs work closely together. There are alliances, their bonds, and they're all talking to each other. Right. So, but you kind of don't know where the stages of conversations are. And, um, and, Sometimes it just kind of all comes together um, and it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I, I would just say don't give up. I mean, just you. I mean, I think most people have a year. I would say use that year fully um, and try to just stay very positive uh, with the LPs, with the communication, because you literally, literally never know when it just kind of all hits. Because uh, one person will come in, they'll be like, oh, yeah, by the way, we were, I've been already talking to them and, and we're also going to come in uh, type of thing. Right, right. So, so. Y- you didn't set any other sort of deadlines uh, after you did that first close um, in terms of, you know, how long would you keep pushing on to, to hit the 40? You would have theoretically used the whole year that you had there. Uh, if we had to, we might have, I think partially it's such a draining process. It's exhausting. And the early, uh, the early LPs, no matter the small, even the small checks that like we had a lot of respect for them. Like they want us to do deals and it, it was started getting, you know, because we started in June, by December, they're like, uh, so have you guys done any deals? Mm-hmm. Um, and TX and I were exhausting ourselves running around the country, running around the world. Um, and uh, so at some point, both TX and I, we were like, oh, my gosh, if we didn't make it, uh, you know, uh, we, we always set the time that by February, if we were only at, say, mid-30s, that we were going to switch gears a lot. Um, and that we we're only going to mind the folks that were ready, that we already had conversations going. Um, and I think there was some, you know, I think some, uh, for, I think for folks who are out raising, there are some LPs that a lot of people say, oh, for the big LPs, like it takes them like a year to get to know you. Um, 
it's generally true, but there are some really like progressive forward thinking folks that uh, will come in even after just knowing them for like three months. Mm-hmm. It really depends on who they know within their network and how much time capacity they have to get to know you and, and all this stuff. So I would say, I wouldn't take that as a rule, as a like hard set rule. Uh, there are institutional LPs that can move quickly. Um, and, and, we, and we learn that in a, in a positive way. So a long, an, long-winded answer to your question, Alex, but um, we were going to switch like from 90-10 deal, you know, 90 fundraising versus deals to, you know, 80-20 uh, starting February, regardless of where, where we were. Mm. I've been thinking on this a little bit lately, maybe maybe because I'm hoping that it's true, but I don't know if it's true. Do, do you think that starting and raising a venture fund um, makes you a better VC in any way? And, you know, I'd be curious if so, how, like go, going through this experience now, you know, you raised Susa One, um, now Fika Ventures is, uh, is in the world. Like, do you think you've learned things through those processes of launching these funds that will impact your job now as, you know, as a, as a VC? I honestly don't know, Nick, but I hope so. Um, you know, I think time, <laughs> right. you know, I mean, we've I spent enough time doing it. You gotta yeah, hope. I think time will tell, right? I think uh, both your team and our and our team are still early in the cycle. Um, we don't know whether we'll perform well. You know, I think, but what we have learned is sort of what it takes to get something off the ground. I think if I had joined a large firm in 2008 when I got an offer from a large firm, I'm not sure. I I I, I don't know. I mean, I think there there's perks to that where you have infrastructure, you have network, all that stuff. And you do learn deal making from the best of the best. Um, when you do it yourself, I think uh, you probably are more empathetic to founders, more empathetic when you say yeah. next, no. Um, but whether you it makes you a better picker and finally a better fund manager, um, I, I don't know, honestly. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think it did make me feel like understanding partnerships as in terms of founders are really important because you know, TX and I had some rough, you know, a lot of sort of self-pity days. And I think if we didn't have sort of each other's backs emotionally, one of us probably would have quit, right? Like it's, it's just this really grueling process and you just, and you really, you get beaten up quite a bit. Um, and I think going through that now, I'm sort of much more tuned to when, when there's a startup where there's one more than one founder, I kind of try to see what they've gone through and how they've handled some of that situation. Because um, it, it, it's very telling. Um, so... I want to spend a couple of minutes on uh, on Fika itself and the and the strategy and and what you guys are up to because I think that's that's interesting. Um, uh, but um, are there things are there things now having gone through the process twice now are there things in your head that at least um, you tell yourself, man, you know, Fika Fund Two, we're going to do this thing totally differently than Fika Fund One. I said, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, other than obviously having the advantage now of, you know, having uh, institutional LPs uh, already invested in the firm and you obviously have your list of 600, like, are there tactical things that you think you've learned over the last, you know, couple raises that'll look different for, for FICA Fund 2? Um, you know, we have a fairly sizable number of LPs and, and, and you know, we had to go this way. And I think any first time managers, you can't really be too choosy. Um, you know, we certainly still lean towards excluding folks who thought we thought had sort of, uh, you know, 
uh, unconventional expectations for coming into the fund. Um, I'll have to say, like, we, we weren't purists. I mean, I think I listened to Hunter's um, Hunter Walks talk with a uh, podcast with you, and he said yeah. he really did have sort of the advantage of being able to choose because um, right. he and Satya's story is much comes out. They came out of the gate much stronger, and and I, I see all the reasons why. Um, you know, we 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 were not a homebrew team. We we realized that you know TX and I were, were not super well known, um, and so we probably let more folks in than than what a homebrew uh, did. Um, but I think for fun too, um, I think we're learning to see how some of the LPs work with us because it can be a time suck. Like I'm not <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I think you know it's. it's uh, I think both sides make all sorts of promises, like for our side to get the check, their mm-hmm. side to um to uh, get them, you know, for us to take their checks. So it's, it's like this kind of game that you play. And, and I think we're learning the ones that are, uh, are, are good fits with us. And, and I think we'll always feel that this first sort of pod uh, are, are special and we'll, they'll always have sort of special rights to fun too. But I think we probably want to think about sort of what that makeup will look like for fun too. Um, in terms of other things we've learned, uh, yeah, from a fundraise process, I, I'm hoping it would be easier and faster. I think a lot of folks, it's fun too, should be easier because you don't have the full metrics. And But we certainly don't want to rely on that. I think TX and I really believe that we want to earn our way into this and we want to, you know, we want to perform really well. Um, even in, uh, through the first one, we want to have some wins um, early on. So uh, I'm not sure if that's a learning or not, but we're not going to rely on that. Fun too should be a piece of cake mm-hmm. uh, just because we have these people already involved. Um uh, other things we've learned. I don't know if I have any other hard lessons. I yeah. think I think most of the learnings is really just now kind of refining our lenses on how to choose deals and how to make decisions as a team of four. Um, you know, a very different team of four than the team of four at SUSE. So most of our learnings right now is like how do we make the team like really hum, really gel, and how do we make you know sort of productive decisions um, and stuff like that. So I think we're still le- growing as a group. So we probably could have started the podcast here, but I guess we'll end the podcast uh, or at least a few more questions. Um, you know, tell us a little bit, you know, so fund is raised, you're, you're in market now, you're ready to go. You just, you know, the launch was awesome a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, what does FICA stand for today? And, um, and, uh, and what are you guys doing in LA? I really appreciate the kind words, Nick. Um, so FICA, you know, we, are very sort of, uh, in some ways, a typical seed fund. Um, and I think it's probably the seed, this, the seed fund of uh, 2017 um, in the sense that you know, we're hoping to write sort of decent-sized checks that have meaningful ownerships into hopefully companies that will make the world better. Uh, I think that's really my only goal. I mean, certainly, uh, if the LPs are listening, I think they, they probably saw this in me given that I'm involved in lots of other aspects of uh, life, whether it's philanthropy or policy. Um, you know, I want to drive the IR. I want to drive the returns. Um, but I think uh, I hope FICA will be bigger than that, bigger than that um, for our community. Um, and hopefully we'll stand out um, amongst sort of the VC uh, uh, group that, you know, we want to support founders, uh, not just to build sort of uh, high return businesses, but ones that really have a, a strong sort of hopefully a social impact. Um, and we're not a social enterprise fund. I'm, I'm not going to go that far, but I think at this point in my career, I think we're looking for the bigger ideas. Um, yep. I, I don't want to use the word frontier technologies. I really don't have know what the heck that means. Right. Um, but really just people who are more ambitious um, with what they want to solve and solving things that are will impact uh, sort of the mainstream or the broader group of 
sort of a large percentage of the population. Um, I think in through SUSE, one learning I had was we had investments that were uh, geared towards sort of the one percent of society, and and this is not to detract from the value of those companies or those founders. I think they're very legit, and they'll and some of them have built really big businesses. But for me and TX at this point, that's not sort of what's going to keep us going. Um, and hopefully, we standing by that goal. We'll also can build a a a a, a decent fund out of it. Um, we're focused on LA, you know, 50 percent uh, in terms of from investment um, allocation. Uh, the other fifty percent will be mostly Bay Area, as well as some other markets like New York and Seattle, where we've had made bets before, and we have some good mm-hmm. sort of networks and understanding of those markets. Um, I really would like to tackle more markets uh, in, in time for fund uh, two, three, four. Um, I'm a big believer that a lot of the innovation will come from other interesting markets like Minneapolis and Memphis and stuff. Um, but because we're a small team, I think uh, having that local support is still really important. Um, uh, in terms of sectors, enterprise, B2B, uh, data-heavy companies, I think that's sort of been our bread and butter. Um mm-hmm. And we'll continue to double down on that. Um, a, a, a small bent now um, towards a digital health. Um, it, my background, I have some background in healthcare and been watching that sector for a while. feel like it's a good time both for LA uh, and for our fund to do some, in, uh, to make a few bets there. So I think uh, that's one sector that's a little bit new uh, to both TX and myself. Um, and uh, have you, have you, have you made your first investment yet? We have. We made three investments. Um, okay. Yeah, we have made three, um, and we've. Um, and it's fun, it's interesting. We've seen valuations are really, really a, a, a wide sort of range of valuations in those three investments. Um, and um, and we have a very strong pipeline. It's, there's been actually a lot of deals coming through. Uh, starting, I think, like February or early February. It's been very healthy, and I'm not just saying that just to say it, but. Uh, it seems like there's been a lot of deals floating around and I'm excited actually to work more with the uh, funds like yourself, um, pre-seed funds a, a bit more closely. I think there's a couple of outfits like you, yours. Um, I think there's a lot of value in that. And we see a lot of deals that are pre-seed and they all sound quite good, but you know, sometimes I think of whether we have the right lens to like really look at them well, right. a team like yours that is specifically focused uh, at this stage. So, um, so I'm excited about that. Um, do you take board seats? Uh, we try to if we're leading a deal. Uh, and even then, we're pretty uh, relaxed about it from the perspective. Um, you know, I think well, that's one thing we learned actually from Susa and from Carlin for TX. TX took a bunch of board seats at Carlin. And uh, and it was a lot of work for him as a single sort of uh, the main GP. Um, Susa, we didn't take any board seats because philosophically, uh, how I, I sort of came up with my operating sort of background, like the companies I've had before, I just sometimes felt, you know, back then seed investors, and again, seed was defined very differently, um, didn't often, pro- it wasn't the right time to bring in a board member. Um, so that's what we did with SUSE. But now I actually see the uh, the wisdom of uh, TX and Carlin, and we want to do some for the ones that we lead um, in areas that we kind of can be super helpful. Um, if we lead and we actually feel that there might be some another another person that's uh, a better board member, um, we're totally okay with that. So we don't really set like hard rules uh, in, in that way. Cool. Um, and where, where can people find you online? Uh, we're just uh, Eva at Geeka.vc is my email. Um, you could just email me anytime. Um, I'm Twitter. I'm just at Eva underscore ho H O. Um, so we're both, uh, we're all of us are very, um, very, uh, 
reachable. Um, in, in many ways, we're too reachable. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, look forward to working with uh, all the various folks, founders, and GPs out there. Out, outside of Fika, um, could you could you tell us a little bit about uh, a little bit about the work that you're you're doing uh, with the city and some of the philanthropy that you do? Sure. Um, I, I was very privileged to be asked to be the EIR um, or entrepreneur in residence for Los Angeles um, for this past year. My term ends in April, um, and it's been uh, really interesting working with Mayor Eric Garcetti. I think for the, those who know him, he's um, or, or for those who don't, um, he's really quite a rising star. Uh, he's entering hopefully a second term. Um, very young young and ambitious and uh, thoughtful individual. So I feel very lucky to serve under him. And the EIR, I mean, I think to some of the work that we've done, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, just to explain, it's really just the second time that they've had this position. Um, so they, the, the city uh, itself is learning sort of how to best, uh, best sort of position and, and make this sort of person productive. Um, the goal is really to be a bridge between the tech community and the city um, and understanding how the city could be supportive uh, to making LA a great place for entrepreneurs. Um, so I went into the position kind of thinking like, I really like that mission, but I really saw issues, uh, especially around like homelessness um, and other sort of priorities for the city. So I ended up actually doing projects around data and homelessness. Um, we have two sort of big initiatives in the city that's been uh, uh, one big bond that we passed in November. We have another big um, bill that's coming out this March. So um, really excited that I got a chance to do that. And I encourage anybody um, who is uh, interested in understanding how the city, uh, how their city sort of works with uh, startups um, and their impact with each other. I think it's it's a great position to, to, to take on. Um, on the philanthropy side, I've been very fortunate. I started in philanthropy sort of post Google days and and uh, and I sit on the board of uh, four nonprofits, um, the biggest one being California Community Foundation. Uh, a lot of you might not have heard of it, but uh, it's one of the, it's, I think it's the fourth largest foundation in the country. Um, we, we manage about $1.5 billion and give back about $170 million um, each year to uh, the county of L.A., um, all focused on underserved uh, 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 population and underserved needs. Um, so we support everything from immigration to uh, a sustainability for other nonprofits. Um, you name education, healthcare, a uh, whole a uh, whole bunch of stuff. So I feel very lucky that I've uh, through many different sort of tentacles in LA that I'm I'm hopefully trying to be helpful in all the different areas and and I think hopefully all that sort of different type of work will be extra useful to founders like if they need to understand how to like navigate right, the regulatory or policy environment, um, at least I can sort of point them in the right direction if I don't know the answer myself. Well, any, any founder would uh, be very lucky to have you on their board. Um, and uh, super appreciate um, you taking the time to, to tell us about FICA and, and, and congrats again on, on, on launching the fund. Thank you, Eva. Yeah, thank you so much, Nick. Thank you, Alex. It was a really real pleasure to be with you too. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a pre-seed venture capital firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. We'd like to thank Silicon Valley Bank for sponsoring season two of Origins. At SVB, the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, its experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the Silicon Valley Bank team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. 
If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glawe, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound. 